This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Friday, February 18th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I missed the entire Mexican avocado showdown, and now it's over. So a U.S. avocado inspector had been threatened over cell phone, unclear if it was text or voice, and the U.S. government said, that's it, we're out. The U.S. was standing up to the drug cartels who have been trying to exert their influence on the avocado business, which as CNBC reported is quite huge. 135,000 tons of avocados have been sent to the U.S. from the Michoacan region in just the last six weeks, according to Mexico's Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development. Now they're the latest victim of the country's drug cartel turf wars. That's right. The real victim here is the avocados. The drug cartels, through a combination of cruelty and brutality, have been known to machete avocados, gut them, slice them in half, pulverize their insides as a display of power or as a lesson to others. Odd phrasing aside, it is true that the Mexican state that provides the U.S. with 90% of its avocados, Michoacan, has come under the influence of the cartels, and like much of Mexico as a country, is becoming a narco state, and trouble abounds. Last year, an employee of APHIS, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, the U.S. APHIS, he was a Mexican national. He was gunned down near... Tijuana. Mexican prosecutors said he was killed by drug traffickers who may have mistaken him for a policeman, which target him for murder? Yeah, that is how it works. The U.S. Department said investigations, quote, concluded this unfortunate incident was the case of Mr. Flores, the inspector, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes, that being Mexico in the present day. Now, I don't want to cast dispersions on a whole country or an entire people. There are many elements of the government trying to combat the cartels. The vast, vast, vast majority of the people do not want to live under the violent influence of the cartels. But of course, let's acknowledge it's a huge problem. Further aware that what I'm talking about is one crime and one threat that affected some Americans or people affiliated with Americans. And that's why I'm paying attention. That's why there are all these reports about the threats to the inspector and the Mexican cartels. If you affect Americans and their appetites, there will be consequences. That's a little grotesque when you think about it. But this is the situation we're in. And it is true, we learn about the situation when there is a news tie-in. This is the news tie-in, rampant murder, threatens our snacking. If you want me to feel guilty about that, I will a little bit, but it is also the fact that Mexico has 200 million fewer people than the United States and 15,000 more murders. The avocado spigot was turned back on, however, so the avocados have been liberated, even though their home country is beset by the oppression of violence. On the show today, I spiel about the sentencing of Kim Potter, the Minnesota police officer who meant to tase but wound up shooting and killing young motorist 
Devontae Wright. But first, if you want to know the state with the most interesting elections, right now it's Georgia. A primary for governor as a referendum on Trumpism. The general election will feature one of the biggest stars of the entire Democratic Party, Stacey Abrams. The Senate race will feature an incumbent versus a household name football hero. The Secretary of State race offers a choice between reality and the big lie. So that's all. Bill Nygut of the Georgia Political Rewind joins me up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So the last time we looked at Georgia politics, it went something like this. People wanted Stacey Abrams to run for Senate because there were a couple seats up. She declined. So John Ossoff ran against David Perdue and Reverend Raphael Warnock ran against Kelly Leffler. Both the Democrats won. Hold on to a couple of those specific names. Because right now, David Perdue is trying to become the Republican nominee for governor. To do that, he'd have to unseat Brian Kemp. Who would he face in the general? It's Stacey Abrams. And perhaps weighing in on all of this is the Secretary of State position, which maybe you remember the name Brad Raffensperger, and he's up against Jody Tice, who is a Trumpnik who denies that there was a fair election last time. I would say that no state is as interesting in 2022 elections as Georgia. I would also say the absolute best place every day to follow these and other Georgia political stories is the Georgia Political Rewind. I am joined by its host and executive producer, Bill Nygut, who I have to say, Bill, if every state had what your state does, I would never get any sleep. So I'm glad they don't. (laughs) You know, that's why I get up at four o'clock every morning before the show, Mike. (laughs) You've been covering Georgia politics. How long? I've been in Georgia since 1983. I came from Chicago way, way back then. So I left one of the greatest cities in politics, Chicago, to come work in uh, Georgia. And uh, I found myself in the middle of of an extraordinary political scene here. Yeah. And even though there were two Senate races, very rare two Senate races in 2020, have you ever seen as much political activity as you're seeing and covering now in Georgia? No. Um, So just to give you an example of that, my show is on every day, an hour every day, and it's live. And the day before each show, um, I send out the people who are booked for the day's show, the next day's show, a list of topics that we're going to talk about. And um, they have come to complain to me about the fact that I'm putting 20 and 30 topics on each note, and there's no way we're going to get to all of that because that's how much uh, is happening. The volume is overwhelming. 
So I think we should maybe start with, there is one name I didn't name, and it is the name that has the most recognition in the state and nationally, Herschel Walker. How does the former Heisman Trophy winner play into all of this? You know, Herschel Walker got to know Donald Trump back when he played for her, for uh, Donald Trump's short-lived football team. Uh, the generals, they became good friends. They stayed in touch over the years. And um, Donald Trump, in his efforts to be a kingmaker in Georgia, uh, decided uh, some time ago that he would recruit Herschel to uh, run against Raphael Warnock, uh, who's up for reelection in November. Um, uh, there are other Republicans in that race, but Herschel Walker is by far uh, the uh, leading candidate and the presumptive nominee. And um, as one of the great stars of Georgia football, uh, he has a, a, a commanding lead over the other Republicans in in the race. What are the chances, have they done head-to-head polling with Warnock? What are the chances that he could unseat the incumbent? Certainly, there is a chance that he can unseat him, but Raphael Warnock is going to be uh, the, the biggest name in Democratic national politics this fall because um, the Democrats, of course, want to hold on to that seat. Warnock has raised more money than any other Democrat running for the Senate um, because of that. Um, Herschel Walker is going to be able to be a big fundraiser as well. So right now, that race seems like a toss up. Mm. One of the reasons why the two Democrats upended expectations and won their races in 2020 was essentially Donald Trump suppressed the vote. He had a message of your votes not being counted. He put his uh, lawyers and advocates into the state with that message. Absent that message this time around, will it be harder for Democrats to succeed? No, uh, because that message is still out there. Look, think of the dynamics of this. Um, As you've already pointed out, uh, David Perdue lost a Senate runoff uh, because uh, Trump essentially said that the election in November had been rigged. And so Republicans didn't come back to vote in in the runoff. That's how uh, Ossoff won his seat. And of course, Warnock won his seat in that runoff as well. Well, Trump is still talking about the big lie here in Georgia. Trump is attacking Brian Kemp uh, because Kemp refused to uh, go along with his theory that Georgia was a fake election, that that the, that the uh, election had been rigged for Joe Biden. And so every time Donald Trump attacks Georgia uh, and, and, and promotes the big lie, it raises questions for Republicans, Trump Republicans, as to whether they should even bother to turn out to vote. So the same dynamic is continuing. Does the political science actually show that the Republican vote was suppressed? I mean, there are, I guess, four reasons why from a uh, not a primary, but from a general election to a runoff that one candidate could succeed more. Right. That the winning candidate had a higher turnout, the losing candidate had a lower turnout or the there was less of a loss and more of a gain with each. Fine. Do we know that that's what happened, that the Georgia Republicans stayed home? Yes, we do. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I'm sorry. But I can tell you that the Republican strongholds geographically in Georgia, when you looked at the turnout in northwest Georgia, which is big Trump territory in rural parts of south Georgia, big Trump territory, voters didn't turn out. 
And there's no question that what you said to, to lead into all this is that Trump suppressed the votes of Republicans. So let's talk about how this might play out in the gubernatorial Republican primary. Uh, Brian Kemp, really conservative guy, just not a Trumpist, is running against Purdue, who has now embraced Trumpism. Will that be what the election turns on? Or, I mean, when I hear them talking, they're not talking about tax credits or, you know, sentencing. They're talking about who has the best chance to beat Stacey Abrams. So what's my question in a nutshell is what is the Republican primary going to turn on? The fact that David Perdue is even challenging Brian Kemp has created chaos in the state Republican Party, just complete chaos. And of course, uh, Perdue's in the race because Donald Trump has pushed him in that direction again as part of his efforts to be the kingmaker in Georgia. Uh, Perdue will tell you that his his reasoning for getting into this race is that Brian Kemp, he says, cannot beat Stacey Abrams. Um, and that's what he's running on. Uh, Brian Kemp, on the other hand, is um, essentially saying, I've been a conservative governor in this state. I virtually eliminated abortions in Georgia. Um, I'm tough on crime and I'm going to be tougher in the next term. I mean, Brian Kemp is is running on much more traditional Republican values Um and, uh, and and so it's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds. Kemp's getting support from most of the um, Republican leadership. But, you know, the thing that we can't measure is um, just how strong that Trump vote's going to be for David Perdue come at the end of May when the election takes place. So let's turn to the secretary of state race, which is probably not something that as a political reporter, you have heard too much before this election cycle, the secretary, the red hot secretary of state race. But it is pretty red hot there in Georgia. Yeah, well, um, again, you have a Trump candidate, Jody Heiss, member of Congress, one of the Republicans who voted against certifying the uh, presidential election uh, uh, outcome. Uh, who is taking on Brian Raff, uh, Brad Raffensperger. Uh, Raffensperger, you know, Raffensperger is a Trump supporter. Raffensperger is the first to tell you that he donated to the Trump campaign. He wanted Trump to be president. He likes Donald Trump, but he couldn't uh, uh, bring himself to declare George's election a fraud, which has made him the enemy of Trump. So Jody Heiss is in this race as the pro-Trump candidate. and. Um, I have to tell you, the odds of Brad Raffensperger being reelected strike me as very, very slim. Huh. I compare that to Brian Kemp. Kemp has done a fairly good job maneuvering around Trump's uh, uh, animosity toward him. Trump attacks uh, Kemp as often as he attacks Raffensperger. But Kemp has somehow found a way to sort of fend off the Trump criticism and keep on course with his agenda in a way that Mm -hmm. Raffensperger can't. Yeah. Raffensperger, no matter how much he wants to put forward that, no, 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 I like Trump or I agree with his, forget policies. He even agrees with his 
electoral criticisms when it doesn't come to actually overturning the election, right? I mean, Raffensperger is one of these guys who said, oh, there's a ton of double voting and, you know, voter fraud going on, just like Trump says, and then they investigate and there's much less. But Raffensperger just can't cross the Rubicon of, you know, pretty much uh, uh, an insurgency. That's, that's what he can't do. And he is, as you say, even if he doesn't want to be, he's the star witness in a pretty robust prosecution against Trump. Yeah, right. He's screwed. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I think you've got that right, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and let's also add that the governor can talk about a ton of issues. Uh, the secretary of state does a couple things, but really he just certifies elections. Interestingly, though, Mike, ironically, uh, after the 2020 election, after Democrats won those Senate races, after Joe Biden one, the Georgia legislature passed a series of election reform laws, including one which takes a lot of the power of overseeing elections away from the secretary of state. And so uh, the secretary of state, if it's a Republican like a Jody Heiss, a pro-Trump Republican, uh, won't have quite as much ability to uh, cause mischief as he otherwise might have. And, and I want to mm. be careful. We don't know that Heiss is going to do anything unethical or uh, certainly illegal if he gets that job. Um, and also, let's point out, as you know, but Brian Kemp was secretary of state and he was accused by Stacey Abrams of essentially putting his thumb on the scale. And I don't know if that was dispositive in his election. In fact, some of what he tried to do was eventually or ultimately disallowed by the courts. But this is not unknown in Georgia politics. <laughs> I, you know, Abram, it's interesting you point that out because every time Democrats uh, uh, try to go after Trump on the basis of his big lie here in Georgia, the Republicans turn around and say, well, Stacey Abrams refused to uh, say that she lost the gubernatorial race to Brian Kemp back in 2018. And to an extent, she did. But she didn't call the election a big lie. She said, I concede that Brian Kemp won more votes than I did and will be the next governor. Uh, she didn't right. go so far as to say the election was she re she didn't refuse uh, to acknowledge that he was the legitimate governor of the state. Right. Her phrasing echoes what every Republican member of Congress who doesn't actively deny the results of the election, every every all of their phrasing. They say, I believe that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president. And she says she said the same thing about Kemp. Yeah. Now, if you were Stacey Abrams or advising her, just watching from afar and puzzling out in your head what she should do, there's all this stuff that's going to go on before the general and she has the Democratic nomination locked up. What should she be doing, if anything? And what is she doing? Well, she's raising so much money it's hard to even imagine how they get it all in armored trucks to Georgia. Uh, she is the most prolific fundraiser I've ever seen, not just in Georgia, but in any of the uh, uh, places where I've covered politics. She, she's an extraordinary fundraiser. And she's in this enviable position right now. She gets to sit back, raise money, watch David Perdue and Brian Kemp attack each other every single day, and wait for the outcome of that race. She right now is doing exactly what she ought to be doing. She's uh, taking it easy in terms of her public presence. 
She doesn't have to be out there every day. She's the best known candidate in the entire race. Um, and so she's letting the Republicans fight it out and saving her powder for the general. Is there going to be an issue, and this could be in the governor's race, could be in the Senate race, that we're not talking about now that voters will vote on? Because I don't think most voters will vote on an abstract idea like was the last election stolen or an abstract idea like no one will vote for the Republican nominee based on the fact that I can beat the Democratic nominee. That's kind of meta. I think it turns on things like schools or funding for water projects or whatever. So what's what's going to be the Georgia issue in a few months that maybe the people out of state will say, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Um, Stacey Abrams will run on expanding Medicaid to the entire state which is an issue she ran on pretty successfully in 2018. She only lost that race by 50,000 votes. It's a it's a prime uh, motivator for Democrats that that the Republicans who've controlled this state for decades now have refused to expand Medicaid, even though the federal government picks up like 90 plus percent of the tab. And Stacey Abrams will make that a major issue in the general election. And it's an issue that will likely resonate in a way that it may not have in 2018, because we've all lived through the pandemic since then. She will run on election integrity, which was an issue that she ran on uh, in 2018 because her opponent was the secretary of state and she felt that he was manipulating the voter rolls to his advantage back then. Um, so that will be a strong issue for her. And the more that Donald Trump pounds away at the big lie, the more Republicans on the ticket, Republicans like a Jody Heiss, Republicans like the attorney general, Chris Carr and others, congressional Republican congressional candidates, the more they talk about the big lie, the more uh, they give uh, some air to what Stacey Abrams will make an issue in the campaign election integrity. Do, uh, certainly abortion is going to be a huge issue here as it is uh, in every state. The Supreme Court in June we will hear their ruling on the Mississippi abortion case. And uh, if they decide to overturn Roe uh, and leave it up to states to decide whether to legalize abortion or not, that's going to be a huge uh, issue in the race here. Well, I don't know why we at Peach Fish Productions are so fascinated by the Peach State, but I think we make a case that it's because it's inherently objectively fascinating. And our guide for this has been Bill Nygut, who is the executive producer of the Georgia Political Rewind podcast and show on your NPR Georgia stations. Bill, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for allowing me to join you, Mike. Take care. And now the spiel. In April of 2021, as Derek Chauvin was being tried in what would ultimately be deemed the murder of George Floyd, about 10 miles away, a 20-year-old named Dante Wright was pulled over by police. The car's tags had expired and a record search showed the driver had warrants out for his arrest. For a gun-related crime, he also had a restraining order against him taken out by a woman. His passenger at the time was a woman, and as police testified at the trial, this caused them to approach the car with caution, their antenna raised. With the door open, and while being engaged by police, Wright attempted to flee. In a split second, Officer Kim Potter made a fateful mistake. What ultimately was decided to be an act of reckless negligence, intending to draw her taser, 
She instead drew her gun, though it was a different color, weight, shape, and on a different side of her body than her taser, and she shot and killed Dante Wright. Potter was charged with two counts of manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter, which the overwhelming majority of legal experts said was a valid charge, and first-degree manslaughter, which was thought of generally as a stretch, or worse, by nearly everybody who I came across who had an informed opinion about Minnesota law and the circumstances of the case. To prove first-degree manslaughter, prosecutors had to show that Potter caused Wright's death while committing a misdemeanor. It's unclear what the misdemeanor might be. The police stop was valid. It was on tape, body cam, that Wright was attempting to speed away while an officer was grappling with him and in danger of being dragged. The answer emerged at trial. Prosecutors argued that the use of the taser wasn't justified at any point. But their case, remember, already seen as a stretch, was handed a big setback when during trial, their own witness... Officer Michael Johnson testified that not only was use of the taser justified in his judgment, deadly force, a gun, would have been justified as well. At that moment, prosecutors objected. They tried to get the testimony of their own witness stricken from the record. They were unsuccessful in that. On Court TV, covering the trial, anchor Vinnie Politan offered this analysis of that development. It's it's unbelievable. It's, it's really unbelievable. But... Even, you know, regardless of what you think about the legal arguments, just the fact that prosecutors are trying to strike the testimony of one of their own witnesses in and of itself is is problematic. You know, I was a prosecutor and you want your cases to be very clean and you don't want to have the appearance that you're trying to prevent the jury from hearing any of the evidence. But that testimony seemed not to sway the jury, nor did Potter's apologies and her near breakdown on the witness stand. If her sincerity was in doubt at the moments of the trial, there was body cam footage of her right after she shot Dante Wright. I grabbed the wrong fucking gun! I shot him! Oh my God! Jim, sit down. Oh my God! Okay. I got it, I got it. Oh my God! This goes on for minutes and minutes. Potter wailing her own body cam went dark because for a while she threw herself face down on the ground and didn't come up. She was screaming in shock and sorrow. It was pitiful. The jury saw that. The jury heard the testimony. The jury weighed the evidence. And the jury came back with a guilty verdict on manslaughter one and two, a big surprise in the legal community. I watched not every minute of testimony, but I followed it every day and I watched much of the testimony. And I too was surprised but I understood what the jury might have seen. Perhaps Michael Johnson's testimony didn't help Kim Potter. Perhaps it discredited him. I mean, here was a guy testifying that he thought shooting Dante Wright was justified. Plus, there was a lot of trial that maybe if you didn't watch it as much as I did, that wasn't covered, such as Kim Potter wasn't assiduous about how often she tested her taser, how often she trained with the taser. She seemed a little lax, and I think a jury might have and did falter for that. Even so, the guilty verdict was highly praised by Dante Wright's legal team and his mother, Katie Wright. But then came the sentencing. Prosecutors were asking for seven years in line with a manslaughter one conviction. Manslaughter two would typically carry a sentence of four years. Judge Regina Chu instead decided on a sentence of two years, with a third of that being served on supervised probation. 
In her sentencing, the judge counseled empathy. To those who disagree and feel a longer prison sentence is appropriate, as difficult as it may be, please try to empathize with Ms. Potter's situation. As President Barack Obama once said, learning to stand in somebody else's shoes, to see through their eyes, that's how peace begins. And it's up to you to make that happen. Katie Wright, Dante's mother, wasn't having it. Kim Potter murdered my son. And he died April 11th. Today, the justice system murdered him all over again. Her pain is palpable. Her surprise is understandable. Two years is a significant deviation down from the guidelines. And words of empathy in a quote from Barack Obama, that's not going to sue the woman who lost her son. Katie Wright, who is white, pointed the finger at the idea that Kim Potter got off easy because she cried. White women tears trumps. Wow. Trumps justice. And I thought my white women tears would be good enough because they're true and genuine. But when they're co-horsed, coached, and taught by the defense attorney, I guess we didn't have a win in this at all. An important plank of criminal justice reform is holding police accountable. But another plank is mercy when it comes to jail sentencing. In this case, it seems that those two goals might be in tension. I actually think it's understandable. What we really want is justice. People don't want just lesser sentencing. People don't want just every police officer who shoots someone to go on trial. They want justice, ill-defined, very subjective. The definition of justice has not included police accountability for many years in this country, but now in small areas and in certain instances, it's beginning to. The definition of justice has been quite draconian when it comes to sentencing everyone but police officers. And now that's beginning to change a little bit too. But still, the emotions of the most wounded in the moment cannot guide us into our conclusions if justice was done. Remember, it's the state of Minnesota versus Kim Potter. It's not the victim's family versus Kim Potter. I think Judge Chu was justified in her sentence. Kim Potter is not a threat. The only reason she made the mistake was, well, who knows? It's impossible to say, but it was a mistake. However, I do have to say that all Kim Potter did was make a mistake, a serious, deadly mistake. That wasn't all she did to contribute to Dante Wright's death. When she threw herself on the ground, as you heard, shrieking, she took herself out of action. She caused other officers to spend time tending to her. It contributed to the chaos at the scene. Dante Wright sat bleeding in his car for almost 10 minutes. Maybe he could have been saved if someone had swiftly run to the vehicle and bravely intervened. What if that person were Potter? But that's not what she was on trial for. She was on trial for manslaughter, shooting Dante Wright in that moment. She was convicted of manslaughter. And the consequences should take into account intentions, culpability, risk to the community, all of that. The judge's sentence was, I don't know, 
it perhaps could have been a couple years longer. It could have just been the manslaughter to routine sentence of four years. But I think it was in the scope of what we might call judiciousness. I understand the counter argument, which goes something like this. Oh, so this is mercy. And this is, of course, where mercy is extended. This is, of course, we're trying to understand the perpetrator's intention is extended when this is the particular perpetrator and this is the particular victim. I understand why Dante Wright's family and his supporters would have that counter argument. But I think in doing so, they're not talking actually about mercy. A quality of mercy is you can't blame it when it benefits your enemies or fails to comfort your kin. Because what you're doing then is you're not really talking about mercy. You're talking about something else, something like justice or retribution. I think mercy actually is an advance to the normal state of things. The Wright family says, this is a lack of accountability. I do not think it is. Letting police officers who maybe should be charged, letting them off, not bringing charges, of course, covering up evidence, not having body cams, those are signs of unaccountability. A body cam, admission of guilt immediately and never deviating from that, a trial, a verdict, a sentence, motivated prosecutors, resources, an informed jurist explaining her decisions, that's accountability. Accountability doesn't mean the maximum sentence. It doesn't mean the harshest consequences. It doesn't mean the harshest consequences under a framework of what's normally done, what's normally applied. What it means is attempting to fit the consequences to the action and taking in the totality of information. And I don't think there is one number in terms of months or years, that would mean accountability. And then if you go over or under that number, you're not having accountability. I think accountability is a process, and the judge convinced me that that process was adhered to. I think the sentence wound up as closer to an example of the judicial system working than the system not working and the so-called murder of Dante Wright all over again. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of rights and clearances for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.